Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWentworth.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. And here are your hosts, Drew and Janie. Thanks, Ray. Welcome to another episode of the Ray Wenderlich podcast. I'm Drew Freeman with my ever-wonderful partner and birthday partner as of the day of this taping, Janie Clayton. Today, we've got Ben DeFrancisco back from Scopelift, and he's going to be taking us deeper into the concurrency manifesto and helping us see an entirely new way of looking at this through the actor model. And a little bit later in the podcast, Drew's going to introduce us to the wonderful world of drag and drop. Now, initially, when I heard that, I when I heard he was doing drag and drop, I thought it was like dragons, you know, like the things from, from Game of Thrones, but, you know, you gotta got actually, like, read it in order to see that like, it's, it's drag and drop, not drag and drop, so, you know, go figure. Also, this episode is brought to you by Hello Sign API. I'll give you more information on that later in the show, but thank you to them for sponsoring this episode of the Ray Wenderlich podcast. Ben, it's good to have you back. Hey, Drew. Hey, Janie. It's great to be back. Janie, happy birthday. Thank you very much. I feel honored that you would uh, you would join us to record a podcast on your birthday. I feel very honored that she came back and decided to be mostly sober for it. <laughs> yeah, the key word there is mostly. <laughs> Cheers. So, Ben, uh, I remember we started talking about the, the actor model when we were talking about uh, what we saw coming likely for maybe Swift 5 with some of the lighter stuff. But the actor model, that's that's really just taking everything we know and sort of putting a shovel under it and flipping it in the air like a pancake. So as we had talked about last time, uh, Chris Latner, uh, formerly of Apple, the uh, original creator of the Swift language and an important person in the uh, open source Swift project, he uh, recently put out a concurrency manifesto that kind of um, lays out one possible approach for bringing concurrency uh, a native concurrency model to the Swift language. Um, and he kind of put it out there as not a formal proposal for Swift, but rather as a way of kind of getting the conversation started within the community around what concurrency would look like in Swift. But at the same time, he also did introduce not just the the initial ideas, but he has put down a, a pull request and some code ideas to, to start working from on that stuff. Yeah, that's right. So as we discussed last time, the, um, the first part of his uh, manifesto was introducing Introducing this concept called async and await. Um, and so async and await is something that he actually, like you mentioned, does have, um, has put up a pull request and there's, there's work on it. And we may actually see that land in the next version of Swift, Swift 5. Um, and as we discussed then, you can kind of think of async await as kind of like syntactic sugar around, uh, around callback blocks, right? Um, so it's, uh, it's very useful in making our code more re- readable and uh, kind of flow more more linearly, but it doesn't fundamentally change uh, the way that concurrency works in the language. Now, on the other hand, as you alluded to earlier, Drew, um, the actor model, which is kind of laid out in the second part of the concurrency manifesto, really is kind of a fundamental shift in the way that you would write concurrent code in the platform. And so that's what uh, Chris Latner kind of dives into in, I would say, like the back half or the second two thirds of this manifesto that he put out. Now, is the actor model, is that one of the, the different uh, design patterns from like the Gang of Four book, or am I um, crossing the streams in my brain someplace? So it's funny. I think you're crossing the streams a little bit. Okay. But it's actually kind of a, it's a fortuitous uh, crossing of the streams because um, because actually actors, while they are different from what we're used to, um, they kind of have um, a heritage um, or a lineage, you would almost say, that is very similar to object oriented uh, programming. Um, so the Gang of Four book, the, those patterns that you're discussing, that that book about um, about different object oriented patterns, um, it, you know, so 
you can almost think of of actors as kind of like an alternate history, an alternate reality of how object oriented design could have played out, could have evolved over time. So so it's Spock with the beard. <laughs> yeah, it's Spock with the beard. It's an alternate universe. It's a different timeline, um, so to speak. Um, so uh, very, very solid nerdy reference there, Janie. I love that. Um, so. Um, yeah, I mean, so if you go back in time, you know, you had uh, we had procedural programming in C, right? And that was uh, developed in Bell Labs and at Unix, and it became very, very popular and widespread as kind of the best thing above assembly, a step above assembly. And then you had um, Alan Kay and these guys at uh, at um, uh, where was it? Uh, Xerox Park. Xerox Park. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Thanks, Janie. Yeah. So they're doing this research on object-oriented programming, developing this new model of how to program and they had this uh, very elegant system that they had developed called Smalltalk, um, which was kind of the original uh, genesis of object-oriented programming. And it had a lot of, it was a very elegant system. It had a lot of, of interesting characteristics. And what ended up happening kind of, and I'm going to just gloss over an enormous, you know, decades worth of computing history here. But what really ended up happening was those, some of those ideas about object-oriented programming, people said, well, we kind of like that, um, but we don't want to have to adopt this brand new system called called Smalltalk. We don't really understand that. We have C. We want to interop with C. And so we ended up with C++, which kind of took some of the ideas from object-oriented programming and bolted them on top of the existing C language as a superset of C, allowing interoperability with C. And kind of all the object-oriented programming that we've had since then has kind of been inheriting this legacy that came from C++ and the ideas that moved in that direction. Um, but like I said, you can kind of think of actors as this other branch of history that kind of played out uh, in academia and in more obscure languages like Erlang um, and is now, um, after decades, kind of coming back uh, to the forefront. Well, so uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Smalltalk. This is, this is a slight detour, but like my understanding is when I was learning Objective-C that um, Objective-C's message sending was based on Smalltalk. And so like you have like we, you have a couple of, of branching, like, you know, uh, choose your own adventure, alternate histories of how programming could have been because because, you know, in one branch you went with C++ and then another one you got like Objective-C. So you had a couple of different flavors of uh, C supersets that kind of went in a lot of different directions. And so I think it's really interesting that like even though we don't have a lot of people who write small talk, like there were so many aspects of that language that inform the design of the languages that we use today. Yep, that's exactly right. And 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 I think, you know, you said it perfectly that you kind of had a you had a lot of branching going on. And you're right. Objective-C kind of uh, represents another branch off of that lineage where it actually took more of the ideas from the small talk world, but it still was uh, a superset of C. And it's actually a great place to start in diving into what makes actors different from objects, um, because Objective-C um, really embraced this idea of message sending, which was a core component of small talk, of sending messages. And that is actually one of the core ideas uh, in the actor model. So within the actor model, all communication between actors is done through message sends, right? So in fact, um, really the only way that you can communicate with another actor from one actor to another is by sending that actor a message. So in that sense, um, it's not too dissimilar from what you're used to with Objective-C if you're familiar with that language. Now, does that mean that the, the actor is responsible for tracking and sending the messages or is there basically a message depot? How, how does that process go? Yep, so that's a great 
question. So uh, an, another thing that kind of separates actors from objects, and, and here we kind of move away from uh, what Objective-C had. Objective-C had message sending, but what one of the things that an actor has is it has a built-in internal queue. Um, so if you're familiar with something like a dispatch queue uh, or, an, or an NS operation queue on Coco, um, these are kind of uh, abstractions for putting a pipeline of work and uh, work together, right? Um, and in an actor, an actor comes out of the box built in with its own internal queue. And anytime a message is sent to an actor, it's sent asynchronously and it just piles up in that queue. It goes into that queue. So any call to an actor is going to be an asynchronous call. Um, you can choose to wait for that value to come back. If you're getting some value returned from the actor, you can choose to wait for it. Um, but it's never going to be uh, immediate. It's always going to go into this queue. The actor is going to get the message when it gets it, and then it's going to come back to you later. Sounds a little bit like the App Store review. You know, you, you get a queue, you send stuff out, and eventually you'll hear back from it, not right away. <laughs> that's, uh, that's so that's uh, perhaps an, an apt analogy. Well, so it's it's interesting because what it does is it forces you, and and it builds right into the idea of the language or of the of the concurrency model that um, everything is going to be asynchronous. So you're thinking asynchronously from the very beginning. Um, so so far we've talked about two things that make actors a little bit different from objects in Swift or in other object-oriented languages. Um, so first of all, actors have, um, as we said, they only communicate by sending messages, and the second one. That we said is that they have an internal queue and all messages line up on that queue. Um, the third thing that I'll mention is that uh, actors are very different in that they don't have any public mutable state. So they can maintain their own internal mutable state. So an actor can receive a message and choose to mutate its own state internally, but there's no public mutable state. So nothing on the outside can be changing any of the properties of an actor directly. And that's very important in concurrency because as we kind of have talked about in the last episode, shared mutable state is really one of the big challenges that comes uh, with concurrent programming as, uh, you know, dealing with that when you have multiple threads of execution, trying to uh, manipulate some shared mutable resource, you can really get yourself into trouble. And so the actor model just completely eliminates that by eliminating the shared aspect of shared mutable state. So if I want to take an actor and I want its internal state to change. Obviously, I'm not changing its state externally. It's changing its own state internally. Now, how would I basically say, well, here's what I'd like you to do. Now, can you tell me the results of that? How, how does that process work then? Sure. So I can send an actor a message and I can say, uh, you know, and as a result of my message, right, as a side effect of my message, the actor can choose to mutate its state internally. And now maybe I also want to get a value back from that actor, you know, some some portion of that mutated state. Well, again, remember, the first thing is that that state is going to come back to me asynchronously. So I can choose to wait or I can choose to receive a message later and do something with that message when I get it. So first of all, right off the bat, it's asynchronous. I'm not sitting around waiting. So there's no blocking. There's no locks um, or deadlock or any risk of those sort of uh, sort of things. And then the second part of it is that any value that leaves the actor. So anything that crosses the boundary of the actor has to be a copy or has to be a copy. Right. So you can't actually pass a reference to an actor's internal state. It can only be a value type that's copied out and sent back as a response to a message. There was a book I, I got a couple of years ago, seven concurrency patterns and seven weeks 
weeks. Um, that was, I, I I thought was very interesting because like it, it's it's one of those things that like when when you first like I just started with programming a couple of years ago and like you don't necessarily think about concurrency because you're just so like overwhelmed with like oh god like what's a table view delegate how am I supposed to deal with this but it's, like it was interesting to go through and read about all of these different considerations that had to be made by somebody when they were designing the languages and designing the APIs and designing the frameworks in order to be able to coordinate all of the different things that all have to happen kind of at the same time. It's like I have this giant waltz and you have to go and, and, and kind of like organize all of the different like people in there so they don't run into one another. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. So language design is all about trade-offs, right? Um, and what's interesting is that for a long time, concurrency wasn't as as important as it's become today, right? So today concurrency is so much more important because we have multiple cores, we have parallelization of GPUs, and even beyond that, we have uh, processes themselves that run across multiple servers and communicate with themselves, with each other, right? So we have microservices, all these ideas. So the idea of asynchronous communication of concurrency in general has become so much more important. And so now as we design languages like Swift and we're building in these native concurrency models, we may choose to make different sets of trade-offs um, in order to best accommodate concurrency. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting to look at those trade-offs in, in, in the actor model. And uh, so we've covered a number of them so far. And then the, so the last one that I want to mention, and it's a pretty important one, is that an actor's, the code within an actor, right, the, the kind of functions and internal code that it can execute um, when it responds to a message, that code can only ever run on one process. I'll call it a process. But you can think of a process as basically being a thread or kind of like a dispatch queue, if you're familiar with Coco. So it's basically an isolated environment. It's kind of the single unit of concurrency. And by default, um, an actor will only or, or uh, restricted, actually, the system enforces that an actor's code will only ever run on a single process that it is assigned when it is created. And no other actor, no other process uh, can ever touch that queue that it's running on. Right. So um, the actor becomes both the kind of uh, it, it holds the state. It holds that mutable state. It holds that code like an object does. So an object holds code and state. An actor does both of those things as well, but it also is itself the unit of concurrency in the system. And that is uh, really, I think, the, the biggest point that makes it different from what we're used to in traditional object-oriented programming. So am I, basically, am I basically in a situation where I'm talking to an actor as an actor? Am I sending two messages, one to say, I want you to make this change, and two, I want you to send me back the result? No, you wouldn't necessarily have to send it two messages. Um, you would send the actor a message, right? And um, as part of uh, the contract that you have between those two actors, it might respond with a message when it processes your message. But it would be it would be asynchronous. So you you get that response whenever it's ready. Yeah. So now I, I'm sort of seeing that physics three body problem, which is now so I've got two actors talking to a central actor. Both of them are going to make requests for it to change its internal mutability in different manners. Yeah. How does the contention work out then, so that I know? Well, somebody else may be asking, so I need to wait for how. Let's let's focus. I, I I'm thinking about this yeah. from. I guess the smaller mindset of, well, this is the problem as I face it now in my world. Yeah, totally. I want to see that problem in that world. I had exactly these kinds of questions when I first started using the actor model. So just for a little back, 
backgrounds. Like I've been learning this language called Elixir um, over the last couple of years and building some some systems in it. And Elixir is built off of this top of this language called Erlang, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, Erlang. Erlang is a language that um, adopted the actor model and has been around in a, a set of kind of niche use cases for a long time. And Elixir now is a language that's being built on top of that uh, and taking advantage of a lot of those primitives. So, Andre, to go back to your question, um, the, uh, the, the, if you have multiple actors and they're trying to communicate with the same actor, that's where that cue comes into play. So the, the actor that is receiving those messages, those messages are going to get queued up on that actor's cue um, and it will receive them uh, in some order based on the order that it re- that they went into that queue basically right so um, the in terms of the the actor itself it's just sitting there and it's processing one message at a time and it's responding to each message as, as it gets them and as, and as far as the other actors are concerned they're just sending messages out into the system right and then they're receiving messages themselves back and they're processing them when they get them so um, it's kind of it's it's kind of interesting to visualize it as sort of these um, systems of like each little island of state and each each one of these little islands is just kind of ping-ponging uh, messages around to other islands that are in the system. Um, you can't stop the signal. <laughs> All right. So you said this is going to be taking a long time. We talked about uh, the A-weight and the A-sync. Uh, potentially might, we might see it for Swift 5. Maybe we don't know, but this is this is not trivial. This this looks like we are going under the foundation, and I don't mean foundation kit at this point. I mean deep. <laughs> how long and and how much do you see this taking? Do we see Swift six seven before something like this begins to take hold? Do we see it piecemeal, or do we see this? Do do, do we see Tim coming out going okay so? What was this Swift thing we used to do? <laughs> how how are we seeing this in the long term? At this point, it, for me, it would be it's pure speculation. I can tell you for sure that it's not going to be in Swift five, um, and just based on reading the manifesto and looking at some of the things that have been discussed, um, it seems like something that is probably more like Swift seven or eight, even right. And it is something that I think that they'll introduce gradually over time, where possible, right? Where it's possible to introduce a part of the concept. Um, uh, and then iterate and, and change it over time. Um, but it's going to take some time for us to get there. I mean, the flip side of that of, is that these languages tend to stick around and be with us for a long time. Um, so while Swift 8 may seem uh, far away right now, um, you know, some of us may be writing Swift for the next 20, 30 years of our career. Um, and so in the very long run, uh, maybe waiting another year or two for this isn't that bad. Um, and I think it's it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. That's for sure. Yeah, I'd say it's been about 20 years for Objective-C for me. And of course, I mean, the nice thing is that Swift being open source, as these things start getting submitted, getting developed, the more people who actually look into the Swift, sor- the open, uh, pro- open source project, they'll be able to test it and try some of these things out or possibly even be contributors in the long run. It's, it's the nice thing about this language having the open commenting, having the the open contribution, that if this is something that really piques uh, your interest, uh, not just from the usage, but from the actual help of guiding or steering these concepts, that's open to the entire community. And I think that that's, that's, that's got a, an interesting... I think the next 20 years of Swift are going to be a lot more interesting than the 20 years of Objective-C. Yeah. Objective-C, we got frameworks, 
Swift we're getting actual language that you can then pile the the uh, the the objects onto. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I would just say that um, what's great uh, about Swift is not only that it's developed out in the open, so you not only have access to the code, but the kind of discussion and the guidance and the feedback from the community is taken seriously, right? So um, these decisions are made out in the open as well. Uh, and so you can join the Swift mailing list if you're interested in this, even if you are not the kind of person who writes compilers, or writes C++, and so you're not going to be able to contribute directly to the Swift compiler. Um, you're absolutely going to be able to take place uh, to take part in the discussion and help guide uh, these kind of foundational pieces of this language that, like you said, we may be using for the next 20 years. So uh, it, it really is great that, that uh, this discussion is going to take place over the next few years and that you, any of us, can be a part of it. It's really, it's really cool. And it will be, it will be an, ex an interesting and exciting journey. Ben, th this is, I, I said it before, this is, this is great food for thought. This is, this is a, uh, Great thing to study. Yeah, well, thanks so much again for having me. It's really been a pleasure. I mean, this is definitely a tough topic to to kind of dive into and explain. I'll just one last time encourage everybody out there to go ahead and take a look at uh, Chris Latner's Swift Concurrency Manifesto. It's a surprisingly approachable document. You'll you'll really get a lot out of reading it, even if you don't follow every single word. Um, so yeah, check that out. And uh, like you said, it's gonna be it's gonna be an exciting few years watching this play out. And we'll have it all in the show notes, along with ways to to contact. Ben. Uh, also, I'm going to look up, there was a, an old chart I remember from the net that was sort of the evolution and the, the, the genealogical tree of computer languages. I'll see if I can dig that one up as well. Coming up in the next half of the podcast, Drew's going to go over how to slay the drag and drop, but first, a word from our sponsors. We know that no API can write your code for you, unfortunately, but HelloSign comes close. With in-depth documentation, customizable features, and dashboard that makes your code easy to debug, you won't find an e-signature product with an easier path to implementation. I mean, it's two times faster than any other e-signature API. Max Mullen, the co-founder of Instacart, used it. He says, We wanted an API built by a team that valued user experience as much as we do. At the end of the day, we chose HelloSign because it was the best combination of these features, price, and user experience. HelloSign API, it's something you can test for free today. Link is in the notes. Definitely test out HelloSign API. And again, a special thank you to HelloSign API for sponsoring this episode of the Ray Wendelick podcast. So I guess it's my turn and we are going to look not in fact at slaying dragons, Aww. but the wonderful addition this year to, uh, to iOS or one of the additions to iOS was finally bringing a more robust concept of drag and drop to iOS. Now, the interesting thing I discovered is they really played it up as drag and drop for the iPad. But in looking at all of this, I discovered that there is a bit of the drag and drop API that you can actually use with the phone. So it's not just limited to the iPad. The, the delineation really comes down to with the iPad, since you've got the multitasking and that ability to actually split between two apps, it's easier to get from app one to app two. With the iPhone, it's still in that single application mode, so your drag and drop can only be limited to, or is only limited to, within that app. So you'd be, I mean, you can actually drag links around and the like for Safari, but uh, as for the more robustness, uh, I really wanted to take a look into what you could do with, uh, with drag and drop as it was introduced at WWDC. I'm just surprised to hear that there was anything introduced at WWDC this year that wasn't associated with metal or augmented reality. Well, I mean, there's always a little flavor in there for everybody. It's like, okay, you graphics people, you're going to love 
this. And, and you people who, who aren't working as part of this world, you're going to love this. And the rest of us who are sitting here like, I just write apps. I want my app to be cooler. I, I, my, my boss says I need to push this business logic to this business logic and call that server. I mean, what's there for me? And, and Apple went, well, here, this will make the apps look a little cooler this year. True. Uh, one question that I had. So I've done a very little bit of Mac development, just played around with it here and there. And of course, we have had drag and drop on the Mac for a number of years. So I'm wondering, is this API that's available on iOS now, I, I haven't had a chance to play with it yet. Is it basically porting the Mac drag and drop APIs into iOS or is it a totally different take on it or is it similar? How does it look compared to the Mac APIs? You know, um, for how it's done, it's got a lot of similarities in the flavor and the feel. But understanding, of course, that iOS and UI Kit was a complete redesign from AppKit. Whereas with uh, AppKit, you had all of the layering that was sort of shoved in. With UI Kit, UI Kit was built on top of layering. So I think what they did was they took a lot of the lessons and a lot of the style from the macOS version, but they re they reignited it and did it in a way that works better for iOS. The biggest thing there is that you're not dealing with that single mouse click. You're dealing with multiple fingers, so you've got multi-point drag and drop. Uh, one of the things they demonstrated in the keynote at WWDC was the fact that you could select something for a drag and then add to that list. Mm-hmm. Could uh, select multiple items like multiple photos. Uh, so there is differences obviously so what are the the u- actual use cases of drag and drop on iOS because like I like I, I primarily use my Mac for like you know Xcode development so like I drag and drop um, you know code files and assets and stuff into Xcode so like to me when I think about iOS it's like okay I mostly I use Twitter I use games like how does drag and drop work into the actual user experience of iOS one of the nice things is that like any other technology you know you know what is the use cases people are gonna keep coming up with different different use cases. But what I like is, for example, you can pick a URL out of a document you're reading, trans- pull that URL over to Safari, and actually drag it over onto the plus button where you would add uh, a tab or you'd add a bookmark, and that drop will actually fire off that button. And part of the drag and drop is actually that spring-loaded button that you can say, well, if a drop occurs on one of my controls, I can actually have that control perform a duty knowing what is coming in with that drag. And so there's a lot of resource motion. That's pretty neat. I actually didn't realize that that was something that you could do, which leads me to another question, which is, how is there is there any kind of um, mechanism for user discovery of, of some of these things or are these more just like power user features that people have to know um, to try to see if things like this work you know that that's one thing I've discovered with with iOS is that there's a lot of oh I didn't know you could do that with this app I mean the force touch in the springboard application uh, whenever a new version of the OS comes out I force touch almost every application in my phone just to see what the springboard is that'll happen. So one of the things that I've always thought with iOS that, that's always uh, been sort of a, a little grievance of mine is the fact that most apps like to work out of the box that they don't need documentation. But as a result, there are all these shortcuts that you never get a chance to discover. I'm, I, there's probably a lot in there. I'll talk a little later about, you know, what to look into if you're thinking of doing your own drag and drop and those considerations 
considerations come into mind. I, I did like your, your comment about the whole like power user thing, because I feel a little bit like um, a lot of iOS UI and stuff like that, it got stuck in like iOS 6. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff that's been uh, introduced from like iOS 7 onward that I feel kind of don't really get integrated into like a lot of the applications that we use every day. So like even though Apple's going and introducing all these really cool features, like I don't like I, they might be integrated into my applications, but I don't know that they're there. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've had a constant feeling of, um, you know, there's all these tiers of technology that I always want to see added into an app. But, you know, I'm one of those people who works on an iOS team of one, whereas in a lot of companies, there are people who have those iOS teams of more than one because that's what their bread and butter is. So they can say, okay, you go off and you go look at that framework and see if there's anything nifty we can add in for that. So yeah, there's a lot of technologies, but I, I just wanted to focus on, on what drag and drop, how what it is, some of the nifty things about it, and just the, the really get your brain in that general idea. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. Uh, it, you know, and I think it's it's okay for certain features like like 3D Touch or like uh, drag and drop to be power user features, you know, things that the average user may not know about and may not need to know an, about, but for those users for whom your app may be a critical part of their workflow and they're going to be using it every day and they're going to want to be uh, really skilled at it, you know, for them to be able to um, improve that the fluency of their workflow is, is pretty important. I, I compare 3D touch a lot to um, keyboard shortcuts on uh, on the Mac, where it's like the average user doesn't need to know all the keyboard shortcuts. But if you're in Xcode all day and you want to be able to navigate quicker, it's great to know some of them, right? And you learn them over time. So it sounds maybe like drag and drop is is like that, and at least in, uh, to some extent. Let me back up and, and talk a little bit about one of the, the some of the nice things. The the drag and drop is actually built for iOS all the way at the bottom of this thing. It's it's down below the view level. It's down below the UX. So as a result, it becomes implemented in the responder chain. This allows a lot of the asynchronous communication that occurs. It's also very similar to things like copy and paste. But, and this is one thing that surprised me, because I went back and I watched the uh, the WWDC video, and I'll put the link in, in the show notes. It's 203, which was the introduction to drag and drop. And that is that drag and drop is secure, and the pasteboard isn't because once you've copied something to the pasteboard, it's on the pasteboard. Any application can say, well, give me what's on the pasteboard. And in the drag and drop world, the data is not available until the contract is agreed upon that, yes, I will take a drop of what you are currently dragging to me. And until that contract agreement occurs saying, I will take that drop, that data is not available. It's not grabbed. It's not done. You've got a, a sort of a promise is what, you know, a way to define it that's saying, yes, you're going to get data of these types or this type, but you do not get the data until you say, now it's time to transfer the data. That's interesting. Yeah. I, that seems to be a pattern with uh, some of the way that with a lot of the things that Apple has done over the years in expanding iOS, you know, we got um, the concept of extensions, right? For years, um, it was it was kind of something that was harped on that in iOS you couldn't kind of uh, move, uh, you couldn't do things like um, you know take a photo and bring it uh, straight into the app. You had to go out to the camera roll, right? And we got this idea of extensions, and you know that was something that technically, for example, had existed on 
Android um, a lot longer. But when Apple finally did it, they did it on iOS in a way that was very secure. So the data, what, what, what you had available to you as an application developer was very limited. And it basically limited the ability for someone to create uh, some kind of malware for iOS. So it's interesting to hear that they're doing similar things with, with drag and drop. And now it's as simple as having the Photos app open. And you basically click on one of the photos, drag the photo into your app. If your app drop location can take, say, a PNG representation or maybe some PNG metadata that comes across at the time that you're ready for that transfer. I wanted to go back, um, Drew, because we were talking about, you know, discoverability of this feature. And uh, sometimes with features like this, um, discoverability, part of it is covered by the fact that the platform kind of adopts conventions or standards um, for where you should implement drag and drop and that kind of thing. So I'm wondering, is, is Apple recommending or pushing any kind of places where they clearly recommend that you should implement some kind of drag and drop functionality in your app? You know, it's not so much a question of where. It's a question of the process that occurs. And one of the things that they, they emphasize is when you're trying to figure out how you would want to inter, uh, implement drag and drop for yourself, the, the question is, okay, so how do I go about doing that? And one of the first things that they suggest is, well, don't just say, I'm going to add drag and drop. Start using the apps with that mindset of, I want to see what I can drag and what I can drop in the apps that were updated for iOS 11 for the system. Mail, Safari, the contacts, uh, messages. Use those and see how that works. I mean, there was some rudimentary with the uh, with the stickers, the, um, the way that that was going. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if the stickers was a unreleased private framework unrefined to see if they could test how that was working. And this has always been Apple's stories that they'll somebody will come up with an idea and they'll say, this is good. We need to push this down to the system layer and open it up. Mm. So they say, you know, try it out, see what is there. And as a result of them having it deep in the system and having the, the API set themselves fairly simple, you get a lot of default behavior. Let me uh, actually really quickly talk through the, the phases of a drag and drop, and that will help me explain how you can know what to look for. Mm, yeah. They break it into actually four sets. And the first one is, I'll list them and then I'll explain. It's lift, drag, set down, and data transfer. So the lift is when you actually do the long press. If you are just using the default behavior, typically what you will see is the view or the widget or whatever it is that you're doing the long press on will shift. It will basically have sort of an outline and visually lift from where it is. It has that sense of, I have now grabbed this element and it is movable around. And that is, I guess, to answer your, your previous question, that's your discoverability. Now, when you lift, you're now going to basically get a lift preview, which is the way it graphically represents coming out of the application. It's got its default. Obviously, like everything else with the API, if you don't like the way the lift preview works, you need the lift preview to work differently for your widget as a sub view in the views. You personalize it with those calls. Hmm. So the drag then says, okay, I'm going to now move it away from its starting point. So once it moves away from its starting point, you're in the process of drag, but you're also at that same point. A drag is also looking around for who can take drops and who can take drops have a function that basically says, well, what can I receive? if something comes over me. So if you can have nothing implemented to say, no, I would not be a drop, it can say, I am a drop, but I'm not going to take that kind of a thing. If, say, you are just trying to drop text into a field and somebody's dragging a photo over, hmm. you obviously don't want that. And at that point, that feedback in the I can't satisfy this contract will actually allow you to, uh, it will 
personalize the drag image to have either a check mark, a minus, an X to give you that idea of this can't be dragged here. Hmm. Also, during that drag period is when you can actually go grab something else and add it in. And again, the default behavior gives you things like it. It has the enumeration, so you know what you're dragging around. Then you're basically in that targeting phase where you're preparing to set down, and the targeting is where the drop elements are saying okay, can I take this thing? When you drop, then it's either going to say, okay, I can accept this. And there is a whole bunch of drop responses that you can give saying I either can accept this, I decline to accept this. And you can also say, if I accept it, I accept it as either a move or a copy. Mm. And copy is what's most common. Uh, you're not typically saying, okay, I want to move this photo out of the Photos app into my app. That's usually a copy. But when you're doing something like you've got three columns of data in one app, you want to move something from column one to column three. And you're responsible on those moves to say, oh, to, to monitor your data model and say, okay, take it out of this data model and add it to this data model. But again, the classes have a lot built in on the back end. So you've got the lift, the drag, the set down which is beginning the drop. And at the time of the set down is when the data transfer begins. And that is when you actually get the representation of the data changed to the delivery. And that happens lazy in the background. You can use file providers. And on top of that, since it's asynchronous, you can actually request the drop session to give you the progress and a percentage in case you need to animate. This is a long period of drop. Say I'm pulling a file off of a, a network resource. All of those steps sound like the steps that you have in a long con. Are we saying con is in a convention or a con is in I am conning you. I am conning you. It's like the sting. <laughs> yeah, it's like first the lift, then the drag, now the set down, yeah. now the transfer. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds, I mean, it, kidding aside, it sounds like a very well thought out process. One question that I was thinking of when you were describing that, the, that last step, the data transfer, is... Uh, does the receiving app, so say that my app is the one receiving the data, say I'm receiving a photo or a link, do I get any context about where that uh, data is coming from? Like, did it come from Safari or did it come from the Photos app or some Twitter client? Or is that kind of all opaque to me? I just know I'm receiving this piece of data. That is going to depend entirely on the type of data you're accepting. If you're saying I'm accepting a photo, you're getting a photo and you don't really need any more information than that. However, and I should back up on this, that one of the things that they've got for drag and drop for iOS is there are security levels. Now, the obvious one is internal. If you're dragging from your app to your app, you could be dragging very complex data models because you have you own those data models. You know what it is on both ends. So you could have a photo, uh, an entire record of information. Going to the other end of that, you have the security level of this goes between my app and any other app. And obviously, at that point, the security is much finer. Um, you know, that's where you say, I could take text, I could take photo, I could take a URL or any UT type, you know, that, and that's one of the things that defines, you know, this is the type of data I'm going to have is you got all the UT types there. There's a sort of middle ground and that's, you could call it suite, which is basically when I have two different applications that may share models. So they know about each other. So these two apps can say, okay, I have this model, you have this model, so I can actually get more complicated data. And there's a, a really great demo that Ray himself did on the Ray Wenderlich site about dragging complex data from sort of an app that has photos of adoptable pets. And he then drags a notepad and it gets the name, but he then drags it to another pet app he wrote and it gets the photo, the name, etc. 
Well, Drew, that was really awesome to get introduced to um, another part of the the new shiny stuff that came out of WWDC. Like, um, like you said, there's just there's so much new shiny stuff every single year that it's impossible to kind of keep up with everything. So this was something that I personally wasn't familiar with, and I'm really appreciate being exposed to something that, even though I don't work with it every single day, it's something that's important that is new that like I wouldn't necessarily have been exposed to had I not been talking to you on this podcast. So that was really cool. Uh, again, we'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Hello Sign, for their awesome support of the Ray Wenderlich podcast. And I'd also like to thank Ben for uh, coming by and dealing with all of our craziness again for yet another week. We really appreciate your patience and you are your knowledge about concurrency to come in and kind of expose us again to more stuff that we weren't necessarily familiar with. Oh, it's been a ton of fun. Definitely looking forward to seeing all this stuff coming in, Ben. Yeah, thanks. It's been a ton of fun. So this wraps up another episode of the Ray Wonderlook podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your uh, your downloads and your listens. We're happy to know that we're not just shouting out into the void. And back to you, Ray. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWonderlook.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.